Let me extend a very warm welcome to the series of Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the session 2014 to 2015. My name is Stuart Brown, and I am Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. And for those of you who may be watching online, we are in the historic Playfair Library of Old College, one of the most beautiful halls in Scotland. Allow me first to say a few words about the Gifford Lectures before I introduce our speaker. The Gifford Lectures were established in 1885 by a gift from Adam Lord Gifford, a Justice of the Court of Session, and a man of broad learning and cultivation. He endowed a series of public lectures at each of the four older Scottish universities, Edinburgh, St. Andrews, Glasgow, and Aberdeen, for, quote, promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology. With natural theology defined as the knowledge of God and the foundation of ethics or morals. The first Gifford lectures were delivered in 1888. And at the University of Edinburgh, our past Gifford lectures have included such luminaries as William James, Henri Bergson, James G. Fraser, Albert Schweitzer, Reinhold Niebuhr, Iris Murdoch, Charles Taylor, and Rowan Williams. Our Gifford lecturer for the session 2014 to 15 is a worthy member of this distinguished company. He is Professor Jeremy Waldron, an internationally renowned scholar of legal and political theory who currently holds the title of university professor and professor of law at New York University School of Law. Jeremy Waldron was born in New Zealand and educated at the University of Otago and at the University of Oxford, where he earned his doctorate in law. He taught at the universities of Otago, Oxford, Edinburgh, the University of California, Berkeley, Princeton, and Columbia before being appointed to a professorship at New York University in 2006. Professor Waldron's work in jurisprudence and political theory is well known and highly respected. His public, published work ranges widely over constitutionalism, democracy, homelessness, judicial review, minority cultural rights, property rights, the rule of law, hate speech, human dignity, and torture. He is the author or editor of 15 books and scores of learned articles. His books include Law and Disagreement, Oxford University Press, 1999, God, Locke, and Equality, Christian Foundations in Locke's Political Thought, Cambridge University Press, 2002, Torture, Terror, and Trade-Offs, Philosophy for the White House, Oxford, 2010, The Harm in Hate Speech, Harvard, 2012, and Dignity, Ranks, and Rights, Oxford, 2012. 
Professor Waldron has lectured widely around the world and has delivered numerous named lectures and lecture series, including the Oliver Wendell Holmes lectures at Harvard, the Storrs lectures at Yale, the David Jacobson lecture at the University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has been awarded honorary doctorates from the Catholic University of Brussels and the University of Otago. He was elected to the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1998 and was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 2011. And in 2011, Professor Walden received the Phillips Prize from the American Philosophical Society for Lifetime Achievement in Jurisprudence. Now, Professor Waldron also taught politics for four years at the University of Edinburgh in the 1980s, and he is still very warmly remembered with many of his Edinburgh friends and former colleagues here with us this evening. The title of his Gifford Lectures is One Another's Equals, the Basis of Human Equality. And over the next two weeks, we will have six lectures. The lecture this evening is being recorded, and the video will shortly be available online on the Gifford website. Professor Waldron, could I now invite you to present the first of your Gifford lectures on more than merely equal consideration, the Reverend Hastings Rashdell. Professor Waldron. It is wonderful to be here, fabulous to be back in Edinburgh. I was here, as uh, Professor Brown said, from 1983 to 19, the end of 1987. Um, it was a glorious time, one of the happiest times of my life. Um, so it's a huge pleasure to be back in this city at this university and a great honor, of course, to be asked to deliver these lectures. I do want to thank the principal and Vice-Chancellor for the invitation. I particularly want to thank Anna Conroy and Alistair Lauder for making all of the arrangements, and Zenon Bankowski also, who helped um, uh, organize this in the early stages. It is, it is um, a, a, a wonderful set of people who have helped me figure out the when and the why and the how of these lectures. Now, the topic for the series is one another's equals. My theme is equality, human equality, the sense in which we humans, all of us, despite our differences, are to be regarded as one another's equals. Created equal, as it says in Jefferson's opening oration in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Or even if not created, and I actually intend to take the creator aspect quite seriously, then we are equal anyway by nature or perhaps by fixed and fundamental convention. So human equality, the sense in which we humans, despite all our differences, are to be regarded as one another's equals. It's not going to be, these lectures are not going to be about particular policy positions. 
like the policy that uh, requires us to try to reduce the amount of economic inequality in the world, the astonishing amount of economic inequality in our communities and in the world at large. Those are tremendously important matters, but I'm going to be trying to address the underlying concern that the people who thus are being treated so badly are nevertheless the equals of those who are treating them in that way. My lectures will be about the equal worth of human beings, their equal worth in the eyes of God, or just their equal worth, if one doesn't want to talk in religious terms. Human worth, we often contrast it with human merit. We have different merits, all of us, different skills, different achievements, different desert or deservings, different ways in which we can be useful to each other and to the community, different prices that people would be willing to pay for our abilities and services. That's all in the realm of merit. I've heard people say that human worth is what is left over when you take merit away, or what is lost when a life is lost and we know nothing about the merit or the character or the achievements of the people who have been killed. There's something to that. But for some people, some opponents of human equality, this begs the question because they believe that great merit can add to human worth and they believe that great demerit can detract from it. Whereas the idea that I'm going to explore is that human worth is high and independent of the merits or achievements or abilities or deservings of particular individuals. Now there's been an immense amount of discussion of economic equality social equality, equality as a policy in the philosophical literature over the past 40 years. The case for and against egalitarianism, and if we are egalitarians, what sort of equality we should be aiming for. Should we be aiming for equality of well-being, or equality of resources, or equality of opportunity, or equality of primary goods, or equality of the capabilities that are important for people's lives. There are all sorts of theories of economic equality, the difference principle, luck egalitarianism, these are all terms of art for some people in the room and matters of complete mystery to others, but uh, my point is I'm not going to be talking about any of this. There are all these theories, uh, prioritarianism, capability theory and so on. These have been the bread and butter of political philosophy since John Rawls began crafting his conception of justice in the 1960s. There's been much less written about basic equality, much less written about the material I'm going to talk about this evening and over the next two weeks. I wrote a piece more than 15 years ago that has languished unpublished, though it has circulated in that form on SSRN. I actually gave a lecture on it in Scotland, the Malcolm Knox lecture at the University of St. Andrews in the year 2000. My Gifford lectures this week and next week are a much expanded and reconsidered version of that. As I said, there's plenty of work in equality, but precious little on the background idea that we humans are fundamentally one another's equals. There's a page or two in an article by Bernard Williams and another page or two in an article by Gregory Vlastos, and there's a few books, there's a few pages in Rawls's uh, theory of justice, and that's about it. It's not because the fundamental principle is thought unimportant, it's, it's, it's thought very important. Much of the work that's being done on equality as a policy aim presupposes the importance of basic equality. I was brought up and taught for my doctorate by the great legal philosopher Ronald Dworkin, and lately until his death two years ago, uh, I was his colleague at NYU. 
Dworkin did a tremendous amount to explore and articulate the nature of our commitment to equality, but he insisted that we had to pay attention to the distinction between surface-level equality and the deeper underlying principle, which he called the principle of equal concern and respect. Without that distinction, he said, people would be unable to distinguish between treatment as an equal, which is fundamental, and equal treatment, which may or may not be required in particular sets of circumstances. Sometimes treating us as one another's equals may require unequal treatment. We recruit strong people, not weak, for the position of firefighters. We recruit young people, not old people, to the fire brigade. We discriminate in that sense, but we think the surface level discrimination is justified at a deeper level that takes all our interests into account. We are all better off if our firefighters are strong and relatively young. Only we must be sure that we do not discriminate in the range of human interests that we appeal to when we make that justification. That is, having strong and young firefighters must benefit the old as well as the young. Having, having um, uh, people who are fit and active as firefighters must benefit those who are not fit and active. We appeal to the range of equal human interests sometimes to justify a um, inequality, and I think it's tremendously important to bear that in mind. We'll take another example. Think about our response to security issues in the war against terrorism. There was a temptation after September the 11th, 2001, to place special burdens and travel restrictions and all sorts of FBI inquiries on people of Muslim extraction. I suppose it's conceivable that such restrictions might be justified. That would amount to a surface level of inequality, but it would only be justified if the case for such restrictions took everybody's interests into account, the interests of Muslims as well as everybody else. And it was a worry for all of us that there was a sense that the interests of those we were discriminating against were not themselves factored into the justifications that we were alleging for those discriminations. There was a worry, in the words of David Cole, that they were having to give up their liberty for our security, rather than the, the matrix or the equation of um, liberty reduction being justified with reference to the security of everybody. Any decent underlying argument for inequality must take equal account of all interests. And so that's the sort of difference that I'm talking about. As I said, I owe this way of looking at things to the work of Ronald Dworkin, this distinction between basic level uh, equality and surface level equality was fundamental to his work. Yet in his prolific career, Dworkin said next to nothing about the nature and grounds of the principle of equal concern and respect. He gave us the phrase, he repeated it in almost everything that he wrote, but he devoted very little energy to the task of considering basic equality, what it amounts to in itself, what if anything evokes it in the character or nature of the beings it proposes to treat as equals, and above all, what its denial would involve and precisely what would have to be refuted if this foundational assumption of equality had to be defended against real-life political opponents. So that's the gap that I'm going to try and fill in these lectures. Basic equality, equality of human worth, equal concern and respect. Another concept that's used here is human dignity. And that's also going to be in play. It's a cluster of concepts that I'm trying to get at. Equal worth, equal human dignity, 
equal concern and respect, the demand for equal concern and respect. Our equal dignity as humans, something fundamental about us that makes it important for us to respect each other in the same way, to attribute to each other and to respect and uphold the same human rights, and to offer each other the protection and consideration of the same laws, equal protection, as we say in the United States. For these are, in part, legal ideas, not just philosophical ideas, particularly in the way they hook up with constitutional principles like equal protection, equality before the law, anti-discrimination law, vindicating the vindication by law of the principle that men and women are one another's equals, or that people of different races and different, different ethnic backgrounds are one another's equals. Now, anti-discrimination law pays tribute to that at a deep level as well as at a surface, a surface level. So, and certainly the idea that we have equal fundamental rights, human rights, uh, if you like. We may disagree about what these rights are. We may disagree about whether the Human Rights Act or the European Convention embodies a sensible account of those rights. And we may disagree about what it is to interpret those rights sensibly in court. We disagree about all that, but we still believe that there has to be a range of basic rights that are enjoyed equally by all men and women, human rights. And that is part of, again, the package that I'm exploring this evening. These sound like abstruse legal and philosophical ideas. I hope, though, that they will resonate with our ordinary lives as well. Um, this room is full, but if you look around you and look at the differences between you as members of the audience, some are old, like me, some are quite young, it's gratifying, some men, some women. There are evident differences of race and ethnicity, perhaps not as many as there should be uh, in the room. There are differences of appearance. Some of you are fit, some like me are not so fit and not so thin either. Um, some of you show in your faces that you are healthy. Others might struggle to conceal illness and infirmity. Yet despite these differences, we look around people in the room and we respect one another as each other's equals. We say that equality matters more than our organic differences, but we have to ask matters how, matters why, matters in what respects, and that's what I'm going to talk about. Or look around you again and this time focus on evidence of differences of wealth and income, differences of status. Some rich, some poor students groaning under debt, some powerful and successful, some beginning to aspire to that. Differences of formal status, the professors, the lecturers, the graduate students and the undergraduate students. Differences of status in the eyes of the law. I'm a new, you are citizens of the UK. I'm a New Zealander here under a temporary visa and living in the United States under a green card. Different statuses in the eyes of the law. Maybe there are soldiers as well as civilians, fugitives and convicts as well as law-abiding citizens. Homelessness as well as homeless people as well as property owners. Bankrupts, infants, lunatics. All these statuses which differentiate us in the eyes of the law and yet are supposed to be reconcilable with the fact that fundamentally and at base we are one another's equals. Different statuses reconcilable with the principle that there's just one sort of human being, just one rank of humanity, the specific dignity of being human, a high and massively important status that we all bear. In my Tanner lectures at Berkeley a few years ago, I distinguished two kinds of status, two kinds of legal status. I called them sortal status and conditional status. 
in the, uh, in the Anglican liturgy, there's a prayer for all sorts and conditions of men. So I stole that terminology from the prayer book. Most of the status distinctions that are obtained these days apply to individual in virtue of certain conditions that they're in. Bankruptcy, minority, lunacy, alienage, members of the armed forces, vicissitudes or conditions that various people have gotten themselves into for the time being. Maybe even nice statuses like marriage and uh, so on. These are, they tell us nothing about the underlying personhood of the person who has them. These are just particular statuses that people may be in because of choices they've made or because of things that have happened to them. Sortal status, by contrast, categorizes legal subjects on the basis of the sort of person they are. Modern examples are hard to find, and that's a good thing, but historically you can think of villainage and slavery. You can think of racist legal systems like apartheid-era South Africa or America from 1776 until at least 1867, which recognized different sorts of human beings and ascribed different statuses to people permanently on the basis of the race they belong to. Our legal systems ascribe separate status to women, and these social statuses, these social statuses, represented people's permanent situation and destiny, and it affected how their conditional statuses operated. You know, a person of low of a low social status would be punished differently from a person of high social status. Well, one way of thinking about basic human equality, one way of thinking about human dignity, is that it denies there are social status differences among humans. It rejects what was once held, that the law has to concern itself with different types of human beings. There is just one social status. That's the point, the status of being a human being. And the principle of basic equality maintains that as a matter of principle and puts it forward as a basis for positive law. To use Gregory Vlastos's term, we are a single status society. We have all the conditional statuses, but we believe fundamentally there is just one sort of human being. So you, there you have it. That's a cluster of ideas that I'm going to talk about. Now, Professor Brown spoke of the detail of Lord Gifford's endowment for these lectures. Lord Gifford set up these lectures for the stated purpose of promoting, advancing, teaching, and diffusing the study of natural theology in the widest sense of the term, which is where a lot of Gifford lectures take refuge in the, the breadth of this charge. In other words, he said the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his attributes in nature, and the knowledge of the relations which man and the whole universe bear to him. And Lord Gifford believed that this would take the lectures into the area of values and ethics. And that will happen in this series as well. For in light of this charge, in light of this specification of the responsibilities of the Gifford lecture, lecturer, it would be wrong not to pursue this theme of human equality in a religious context. To speak about the idea that we are all equal in the eyes of God, uh, the idea of basic equality is certainly in that domain. When believers say we are created equal, when people of faith say that we are all children of God created in his image, then they are addressing, from their point of view, exactly the topic that I want to talk about uh, this evening. And I will talk about that as well. I certainly do not want to preclude the possibility of a purely secular account of basic equality. And much of what I say in these lectures, these lectures will have a secular character, although its religious resonance will be pretty obvious. And I believe, by the way, 
that a religious account of basic equality can actually help illuminate what people want to do when they develop a secular account as well. There can be cross-fertilization among these ideas. Lecture five in particular, that by my count is Tuesday of next week. Lecture five in particular will be devoted to the idea common to the Jewish and Christian traditions that each person's normative equality in her relations with her fellow human beings is supposed to be a reflection of her relation to God, her God-given status as the high equal of all other human creatures. I'm not going to be coy or evasive about this in the way that the tradition of modern political liberalism sometimes demands that we should be coy and evasive under the fancied constraints of public reason. I believe that being one another's equals, human dignity, equal worth, these are supposed to be based on what people are really like. And if it is thought, if it is believed, that a theological or theologically informed anthropology gives us our deepest and most serious account of what people are like, what people are really like, and what is most important about them, then we have no choice but to consider that point of view in an inquiry like this. It won't overwhelm our discussion, but it will uh, be the specific topic of Lecture 5. On the other hand, there's a robust, although there's a robust tradition of Jewish and Christian thought on the basis of human e equality, I am conscious that people have been known to cite religious equality to the contrary effect as well. Biblical chapter and verse have been cited for racial inequality and slavery. People cite Genesis 9, verses 22 to 7. I'm not saying they cite these or interpret them properly, but they cite them. And gender inequality too, Genesis 3, 16, not to mention political hierarchy. People have used religious ideas, including some of the religious ideas uh, gestured at by Lord Gifford. People have used those ideas sometimes to validate massive inequality massive hierarchy, a massive faith in the claim that there are indeed different sorts of human beings. It would be wrong to say nothing about that. If we take religious ideas seriously, we must follow them where they lead. We can't rule out the possibility that in the final analysis, appearances to the contrary, the great religions like Christianity, Islam, and Judaism either do not support or rely on or presuppose human equality, or may be simply indifferent to the issue of human equality, or may actually be opposed to the issue of human equality. We have to consider these possibilities, consider what they mean. Not only will I not ignore them, but I want to begin the discussion this evening, which is what one says, and it's already one minute to six. I want to begin the discussion this evening with a particularly egregious example. And this is where our friend, the Reverend Hastings Rashtal, comes into the picture. I want to spend some time in the company of this Christian thinker who seemed strongly opposed to the principle of basic equality, not because his arguments demand an answer from us here right now today, he was writing around 1907, but because his position is clear and in a number of regards it will illuminate what it is that we are in the business of denying when we say we are one another's equals. When we say we are one another's equals, we are asserting something and denying something. One of the things that we're denying is what Reverend Hastings Rashdale says. I hope you won't find the example too offensive. In general philosophy, you sometimes have to pretend to be a weirdo 
Yeah, you have to sort of believe, you have to pretend to believe. I don't know whether the sun will rise tomorrow. I know it's risen every day so far, but that doesn't tell us it's any, you have to go around pretending to be a weirdo, which can be sort of charming and disarming in general philosophy. In moral philosophy, the same attitude means that you sometimes have to pretend to take seriously things which are offensive. Um, you have to pretend to take seriously things that are odd or weird by ordinary moral standards, and that can make philosophy sometimes quite a distasteful and uncomfortable occupation to pursue. We are going to have to appear to take seriously this evening a position that in other contexts would be dismissed out of hand as offensive and wrong. Still, here goes. So Dr. Hastings Rashdall was a philosopher and an ordained Anglican priest. He was a fellow of New College, Oxford, a pupil of Henry Sidgwick and T.H. Green, and a member of the Christian Social Union. Later on, he was dean of Carlisle. In 1907, he wrote a two-volume book entitled The Theory of Good and Evil, a treatise on moral philosophy, a work of ethical rationalism and ideal utilitarianism in some ways quite similar to the work of G.E. Moore. Rashdall's biblical learning as Christian faith and vocation did not seem to inoculate him against quite deep philosophical racism, which, if you have the handout, you'll see represented in the first, in the first quote um, from Rashdall. I became aware, by the way, of this material because it was identified as a target at the very beginning of a book written by a former reader in philosophy at this university and friend of mine when I was here in the 1980s, Vineet Haksar, a very impressive man, excellent book called Equality, Liberty and Perfectionism. He it was who awoke Rashdall from his uh, otherwise justified entombment and mentioned this material. In a discussion of justice in chapter five of volume one of Rashdall's book, he considered the question, whose good is to be pursued and promoted in our social arrangements? And to what extent? And instead of giving what is for us the obvious answer, everybody's good, and equally, if possible, Rashdall began considering the possibility that people differ radically in their capacity to achieve well-being in their lives. Like John Stuart Mill, he had a sense of higher and lower forms of happiness, Unlike Mill, he didn't believe that the higher forms were accessible to everybody. He said, and I'm quoting, the number of persons capable of the highest intellectual cultivation and of enjoying the good incidental to such high cultivation is unquestionably a small minority, and it is doubtful that their enjoyment of this well-being is much use to those who are beneath them in the social scale. He thought, nevertheless, we need to ensure the attainment of this highest good, whatever sacrifices it requires, Otherwise, he said, the best we could expect would be, and I quote, the general diffusion of a dull contentment and an education ranging between that of the Sunday School and that of the Mechanics Institute. Then he wrote this, and this is from the first quotation on the handout. I will now mention a case in which probably no one will hesitate. It is becoming tolerably obvious at the present day that all improvement in the social conditions of the higher races of mankind postulates the exclusion of competition with the lower races. That means that sooner or later the lower well-being, it may be ultimately the very existence, of countless Chinamen or Negroes 
must be sacrificed that a higher life may be possible for a much smaller number of white men. And then he added, perhaps unnecessarily, that it's impossible to defend the morality of such a policy on the principle of equal consideration. Um, he continued, if we do defend this, and he seemed to have no doubt that we would, we must adopt the principle that higher life is intrinsically in and for itself more valuable than lower life, though it may only be attainable by fewer persons and may not contribute to the greater good of those who do not share it. That's Hastings Rashtar. Now, as far as I can tell, there's nothing ironic in this passage, nothing ironic in its explicit racism. He does say, in its, in its deprecation of the well-being of Chinamen and Negroes, to use his terminology, he does say in a footnote, the exclusion is far more difficult to justify in the case of people like the Japanese, who are equally civilized but have fewer wants than the Western. His view seems to rest explicitly on the assumption that, quote, our comparative indifference to the welfare of the black races when it collides with the higher well-being of a much smaller European population, that's the end of the quotation, is a topic for justification and condemnation. Now, I know of no one now writing in moral or political philosophy who accepts that there is anything like this ethically significant division of the human species into races in the way that Rashtal seems to have supposed, although, of course, outside philosophy. There are many who do. However, the consensus among us that positions like Rashtal's are obviously wrong doesn't excuse us from the task of articulating why they're wrong. What exactly is it that Rashtal has missed or got wrong or sidelined or pushed aside? What exactly in these Rashtal passages would we want to dispute? Is it just the racism? There's also a question about the tone, the insouciant complacency of the Edwardian senior common room. But which of the assertions and which of the differences does he have wrong here? Our disagreement with Rashtal feels fundamental, but is the fundamental dispute about his factual assumptions or the ethical significance of the inferences that he, he draws? It's a question. I mentioned it sounds a little bit at first hearing like John Stuart Mill writing about higher and lower pleasures in utilitarianism. And there's something to that. Rashdal's position is a sort of ideal utilitarianism. But Mill did not accept that these correlated with different classes or, or races of human beings. He thought that the present wretched education and social arrangements are the only real hindrance to the higher pleasures being attainable by everybody. Made some comments, if you remember, at the beginning of On Liberty about his harm principle not being applicable to people who are living in the infancy of the human race, to barbarians who need to be governed by people like Mill and his father. But again, he believed that the races could be brought into the enjoyment of full liberty as well as full happiness. Rashtal seems to have no such optimism. Maybe it's just the utilitarian feel of Rashtal. Rashtal's idea is that bothers us, the idea of sacrificing some people for the sake of the greater good. Except he's not really talking in those terms. He's talking about sacrificing countless people for the greater good of a much smaller number of people, and no utilitarian I know would countenance that arithmetic. It's as, I mean, utilitarians, we have our differences with the utilitarians, but they are fundamentally committed to the principle of basic equality. Everybody to count for one, nobody for more than one. Yeah? Everybody's pleasure, everybody's good, everybody's happiness, everybody's pain counts the same in the social calculus. 
but Rashdal seems to be turning his, his back on that. I say again, I have introduced this nonsense into the discussion, not in order to give it credibility or even because he needs or merits refutation, but the way he sets it out helps us begin to see what it is that we believe in when we believe in basic equality and what it is that we deny that we believe in basic equality. Consider the second passage from Rashdal in the handout. Here he seems to compound the offensiveness of his position by trying to draw something from the way we think about our moral obligations to animals. I think we have a copy of the handout down here. He notices, Rashdal notices, that most people have some concern for animals, but that their concern for animals is less than or different from their concern for humans, and they think properly so. We're against animal cruelty, we say, but on the other hand, we eat them, and we turn a blind eye to some, some of us eat them. I know many of you don't. We turn a blind eye, those of us who eat animals, to the, the sustained cruelty, uh, the way they are raised and bred and fed and slaughtered. But nevertheless, we think the human-animal distinction is justified, or many people do. Our moral thought is already characterized by the idea of a big moral discontinuity within the range of mammals. Right? There are mammals, but then there are, when you're talking about humans, you're talking about something special. We believe there's a justified distinction, therefore, between the manner in which we think about the well-being of humans and the manner in which we think about the welfare of animals. Though we may deplore the suffering of animals when it's made inescapably visible to us, we certainly do not commit ourselves to anything like a general program of the improvement of animal lives, comparable to the programs that even in Edwardian England were being pursued for human beings. So Rashdell asks the embarrassing question, puts us on the spot, might there not be divisions within the human realm that are also justified in a similar sort of way? Having established that the pain of animals ought not to be wholly ignored, Rashdal continues, but few people would be disposed to spend money in bringing the lives of fairly well-kept London cab horses up to the standard of comfort represented by a sleek brewer's dray horse in preference to spending that money on the improvement of higher life in human beings. We spend money improving the lives of Londoners. We don't spend money improving the lives of London cab horses. Yeah. He says, the lives of animals cannot thus be lightly treated except upon a principle which involves the admission that the life of one sentient being may be more valuable than the life of another. He's not denying, I don't think, in this that man is raised above the animals. In the first quotation he's saying that some classes or races of humans are raised above, animal, are raised above others. Some classes or races of humans are raised above other classes or races of humans. But he's certainly not arguing that, that humans or any class of humans are like non-human animals. He uses the animal analogy simply to show that we are familiar with the idea of less than equal consideration, or some of us are. So what I draw from that is that we want to oppose the idea with which Rashdal seems to be comfortable, that there might be distinctions or differentiations to be made in the human realm that are comparable to the distinctions that some of us make between the human and the non-human animal. 
Israel. Let me put that again. We are opposed to the idea of discontinuities within the human realm, which are analogous to the kind of discontinuity that many people see between the human and the animal realm. I'm not saying when you accept this principle that you are therefore committed to a discontinuity between the human and the animal realm, but you know that people do say this and you know the sort of thing they have in mind and what you want to say is no such sort of thing applies within, within the, human, the human realm. So there's a possible starting point on something that we want to, we want to pin down, I think. I'm going to distinguish, as it says under topic four on the song sheet, I want to distinguish between continuous and distinctive equality. A principle of continuous equality simply asserts a negative. There are no distinctions of the relevant kind between human and human. Right? A principle of continuous equality simply asserts a negative. There are no distinctions of the relevant kind between human and human. Nothing like the distinctions that some people make between human and animal. A principle of distinctive or affirmative equality adds to this not only that humans are indeed one another's equals, but they are one another's equals on a basis that differentiates them from other animals. So the second position includes the first, but takes it further. It actually asserts the discontinuity with other animals, and it maintains that humans therefore exist on a higher, higher plane. Okay? It's going to be important all the way through the discussion. Because I think those, both of those positions are sometimes associated with human equality. Now, pinning down the meaning of continuous equality, pinning down the meaning of that negative, is of course a bit of a problem because it defines itself by reference to a position that it does not necessarily embrace. There are no distinctions among humans of the kind that some people think exist between humans and animals. Well, what kind of distinctions are those? After all, there certainly are distinctions between humans of various kinds. We certainly do pursue different goods. We do pursue different styles of life. We do think about our lives in different ways. Some people cultivate one set of pleasures. Other people cultivate other pleasures. Some people give a great deal of thought to the life they are pursuing. Some of them just sit down and drink beer and watch television and say, this is the life, uh, to quote Ronald Dworkin. Is this a distinction of the sort with which we are concerned? I don't think so. I think what Rashdow seems to have in mind are not just different conceptions of the good, but different types of capacity for pursuing value and pursuing the good, different kinds of engagement with value, if you like, or different kinds of improvability. Different kinds of improvability. One of the remarkable things about humans one of the remarkable things about humans is that there is a massive gap within each human life between what that life is like if the person is just kept warm and well-fed and what that life is like if a person is educated and cared for and initiated into the mysteries of society and so on. There's a massive gap which makes us think that things like education and opportunity and care play an enormous role in human life, over and above just feeding people and keeping them warm. If you try and treat your cat or your dog like that, what you'll do mostly is annoy the cat or the dog, right? There isn't the same gap for a cat or a dog between just the virtue of keeping it warm and fed 
and the highest that the cat or the dog is capable of. So I think there's a huge gap in the case of every human. And I can imagine that Rashdal believes, and he says this, I haven't got time to quote the passage, that this may be true of some human beings and not true of others. This may be true of some kinds of human beings, but not others. For some kinds of human beings, there is a huge, possibly unrealized potential. For other kinds of human beings, once you see them fed and keep them warm, what you see is what you get. Believing in human equality, we deny that position of Rashtal as to that fundamental discontinuity. So we believe, our thought is that there is no Rashtal discontinuity of this kind among humans. This is the continuous equality. Continuous because we say the human range is continuous. It's not punctuated. In lecture six, I will talk about issues about children. In lecture six, I will talk about issues about the profoundly disabled, which I believe are not counterexamples to the anti-Rashtal position, but need to be dealt with very carefully and uh, very thoughtfully in relation to everything else. But I need to, I'm leaving this, that to the end because I need everything else in the lectures to fall into place first. So there are no discontinuities of agency, moral agency, affection, mode of relatedness to others, pursuit of value that really characterize the human range and would justify a differentiation of basic worth or basic dignity or basic equality. So that's what I call continuous equality. The stronger position, which I also hold but others may not, the stronger position is that it's committed to continuous equality among humans and to a great discontinuity between humans and animals. That second position, distinctive equality, is roughly equivalent to what is sometimes said about human dignity. For when we talk about human dignity, we certainly assert a certain equality among human beings, but we attribute to them a very high rank in God's creation. We say that humans have dignity at a very high rank. It used to be thought that there were whole ranks of humanity and each one had its own specific dignity. There was the dignity of a, of a bishop, forgive me, there was the, the dignity of a professor, and these were much above the dignity of a parish priest or a graduate student, and certainly much above the dignity, if you could call it that, of the ordinary person. Sometime, probably in the hands of people like Robert Burns, who talked about a man's a man for all that, we began to turn the tables on this notion of differential dignity. We began to revive the old Stoic idea that humans are accorded a great dignity for life among the gods by virtue of their ability to reason. We'll talk about that. By virtue of their ability to reason, not because God loves algebra, but because God can only keep company with people who can reason as he does. We'll talk about that the idea gradually caught on that there was a single rank of human being, not multiple ranks, that dignitas was associated with hierarchy, but dignity was associated with there being a single rank of human beings. And a high rank at that, we are like a caste society, but with just one caste. We are like an aristocratic society, but everybody's a duke, or everybody's a duchess. Yeah? We have high human dignity, dignity raised above the rest of creation. Uh, not, not differences of fundamental rank among ourselves, but different among the inhabitants of the world. And the idea is there is something 
that affirmatively important, that affirmatively valuable in the human person as such. So the idea of distinctive equality tends to hook up with human dignity in this way. And I'm going to be exploring both, both positions. Now, what I've talked you through is a starting point and the agenda. Um, fortunately, Rashdal will not concern us a great deal more, but it helped us to get a grip on this no discontinuities, the negative principle, to begin with, which the affirmative principle embraces as well. Despite all the differences that you see when you look around you, there are no fundamental discontinuities among us, nothing remotely analogous to what some people believe holds between humans and animals. In the following lectures, I want to say more about the logic of that. I want to say a little bit more about the, uh, what it's based on, what the theory of human nature is. But for the last uh, five minutes or so, I just want to get a little bit defensive about this. Lecturers should always get a little defensive. Uh, because I want to consider two points about the possible irrelevance of my discussion. People say, why are you wasting time with Reverend Hastings Rashdow? Nobody believes that anymore. It's one of the triumphs of the modern era that nobody is prepared to say anything like what Rashdow said. He doesn't need refutation. Will Kimlicker, a Canadian, very eminent Canadian philosopher, has suggested that all modern political theories accept basic equality. So what's the issue? Why waste time? Why waste six perfectly good Gifford lectures defending what everybody accepts already? It's beyond controversy. It's beyond controversy that Rashdale is wrong about race. It's beyond controversy that similar positions are wrong about gender. Why waste time on this? Well, my first defensive response is that being beyond controversy is not the same as being fully explicated. Accepting it as one thing, elaborating, articulating, and understanding this position is another. And I really do think that philosophers have the task sometimes of trying to explicate and understand things that everybody else is able to take for granted. It's why we have philosophy, why we pay them. Yeah. So that's the first defensive response. Secondly, it might be said that our emphasis on basic or foundational equality is misplaced. Non-basic equality, non-basic inequality, surface level inequality is surely a matter of much greater social or political concern. In other words, it might seem that our emphasis on being fundamentally one another's equals as opposed to the, the grotesque differences that people's economic lives exhibit. That by emphasizing the one rather than the other, I'm giving exactly the wrong emphasis given the extent and significance of real economic inequality in the world, record inequality, unprecedented inequality, explosively increasing inequality, particularly in the United States, as analyzed and discussed, for example, by people like um, Thomas Piketty in his book, Capital. Certainly the trends that Piketty discusses deserve great attention for all sorts of reasons. As my colleague Tom Nagel puts it, we do live in a world of spiritually sickening economic and social equality. But one dimension of that massive surface level inequality is the prospect that it may begin to leach and leak 
into our commitment to basic equality, yeah? or basic human worth or dignity. I don't just mean that the extent of inequality that Piketty reveals is beyond anything that basic equality could serve as a Dworkinian premise to justify or permit, though that is certainly true. I mean that the drift towards radical economic equality might well seep into the realm of basic equality and undermine it. In part, great economic inequality often is associated with the view or can become associated with the view that the poor are not fully human or that the prosperous are living human lives in distinction to the lives of the poor. Nobody owns up to this at the moment. But the question is, are we weakening the, the basis of people's disinclination to say anything like that? You see, there's a possibility that as class becomes caste, as birth becomes destiny, as economic mobility begins to shrink and diminish, as differences of opportunity start disclosing different kinds of life, then there is a danger, I think, that status differences among humans may begin to re-establish themselves. I distinguished earlier between sortal status and conditional status, and I try to hold a bright line between them, but there's a danger that that line might collapse as well. I said that modern societies um, accept that there is basically just one sortal status and that we are in this respect a single status society, but that may be a fragile and reversible achievement. In the United States, we have massive levels of incarceration of African-American people. And books have been written and the phenomenon has been noted that a lot of this seems to involve something like a resurgence of something like slavery in our prisons. Massive degradation of status the ability of a status like felony to taint a person's life for the rest of their lives, to affect whether they can vote, effectively whether they can work, effectively whether they can make anything like the sort of contributions that people who have not been convicted. There's just one little example of the way in which there's a potential leakage from conditional status to sortal status. You have this debate in Britain about whether prisoners should be accorded the right to vote be careful what you are messing with there. Yeah? In America, the situation is not only do prisoners not have the right to vote, but anybody who's been convicted of a felony in a great many states loses the right to vote forever. It's a lifetime disqualification. And the way that's administered is that many people with the same name and of the same color as a person who has been a felon lose the right to vote uh, because of the sloppy way in which the electoral rolls are maintained. There are ways in which conditional statuses can leak into sortal status. We are worried about that. The philosopher Ted Honderich, some of you will remember that name, used to teach in London, wrote a book many, many years ago called Violence for Equality. Let's leave the violence aside, just talk about the facts of equality. He said if you'd look at the lifetime of the most privileged 10% of the developed countries and the least privileged 10% of the developing countries. The disparity between lifetimes, something approaching 80 years life expectancy and something approaching 40 years life expectancy, is a sort of disparity that if that was all you knew about the species concern, you would have to conclude these are two different sorts of species with two different sorts of typical, typical lifetimes. We have to worry about the impact of facts like that on 
being able to maintain the position that humans are all fundamentally one another's equals. I've used the metaphor of surface level and deep level differences between, between human beings. But some of the surface level differences have immediate deep implications, like surface level discrimination. And it's possible that as we grow into two nations in every society, or as, we, as people's styles of lives become unintelligible to one another, that we will be increasingly paying only lip service rather than real active service to the principle of underlying basic equality. So I know I've wanted to put surface level inequality to one side as a topic for today's lecture, for the whole series of lectures, but I think it's very, very important to understand that the two are connected, that we, we maintain or we believe, if we confront the question at all, that surface level inequality is compatible with basic equality at the lower level. But how credible that will seem and how credible it will remain is another matter. And for that reason, if for no other reason, I think it's very important to, un to have a greater understanding of what basic equality amounts to, a greater understanding of its content, its implication, and its vulnerabilities, so that we understand how this foundational assumption can be pursued or might be endangered in social and economic life generally. I also believe, as I said, that it's a philosopher's job to understand this stuff anyway, even if this wasn't the threat. But enough for tonight. That's the, that's the agenda for the series of lectures that will follow. In tomorrow's lecture, I will talk about some irritating issues and the logic of basic equality, including the suggestion by some of my philosophical colleagues that this is a non-starter of an issue for analytic reasons and that we need to dispense with the language of inequality altogether. Thank you very much indeed. Well, we now have about 10 minutes uh, for discussion from the audience. We have a roving cordless microphone. If you have a question, please, or comment to make, please raise your hand. Up in the front, <laughs> Professor Hurtado. Um. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And uh, can I strengthen your hand with, uh, uh, with your concern uh, about the legitimacy of talking about this kind of fundamental uh, equality? I'd invite you to correct me or speak to it, but, but something like the sort of dis distinction that you ascribe to Rashtal finds, it seems to me, at least a, a functional equivalent in as noble a figure as Aristotle and uh, figures down through the ages who, particularly in the interests of making distinctions often between male and female um, as being almost like different species, but also when it comes to slavery, and I think of Orlando Patterson's uh, classic book, uh, Slavery and Social Freedom, who's basically argued that seems to have been almost the default setting of human thinking, yeah. that, that, that um, slaves of various types or people of other nations are a different species and do not deserve the same treatment. That's certainly correct. I mean, Aristotle is, is notorious for believing there were different sorts of human beings. Uh, humans all had some degree of capacity for reason. 
even if they were slaves. That was the advantage of owning a slave because you could give the slave instructions and the slave would carry, carry out the instructions. But nevertheless, some people were born to rule and some people were born to serve. Thomas Hobbes remarks that, well, Aristotle would say that, wouldn't he? He would say that people of great intellect were born to be served and people whom he fancied having lower intellect than him were born to serve. And certainly that's exactly the sort of discontinuity that we're talking about. Aristotle also believed that women had a certain faculty of reason, but somehow their reasoning was not authoritative in the way that men's were. I don't think Aristotle got out much. And actually, <laughs> yeah. So there are, historically, these positions are all over the place. Um, and I've been, over the last 20 years, living and working with thinkers like Thomas Hobbes or John Locke or David Hume who were engaged in actively denying those differences. There were also differences of royalty, differences of nobility that were um, asserted. There was a man called, John, uh, called uh, Robert Filmer, great opponent, royalist opponent, patriarchalist opponent of um, John Locke. And Filmer believed, he believed Aristotle was wrong about natural slaves. Aristotle was wrong about that sort of hierarchy. But there was hierarchy, only it was retail rather than wholesale. He said, take any group of human beings, no matter how small or large, you'll find that there is one person there entitled to command the others by virtue of that person's superior or more direct line of descent from Adam. So people have certainly maintained this position. Rashdell apart, I probably won't be talking a whole lot about them, but uh, they are in the, back of, in the back of my mind, especially since people like Aristotle are taken seriously for almost everything else they said, and this position is politely brushed aside. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I've got perhaps a facile question, which is, you've been talking in this introduction really about differentiations within life as such. And I was thinking about differences between life and non-life. So on a practical level, sometimes it's in some legal systems, you can kill people to protect things. And whether things have equal value to non-things, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, it is intriguing. Sometimes you can kill people in order to defend people's rights to things, like property rights. But you have in mind killing people in order to protect mountains or to protect forests or um, taboo sites. And sometimes that is because the things have spiritual significance. Sometimes the suggestion might be, why do we need to have moral categories like person? Why do we need to have moral categories like humans at all? Why not simply say, look, if anything is in pain, then do what you can to relieve that pain. If it's a rock, it probably isn't in pain, so we can apply that principle fairly straightforwardly there. If it's a person, it may be. If it's an animal, it may be. If it's a plant, who knows? But people have suggested that maybe we could have our principles organized on a ground that it was much more tightly related to the, uh, the facts that the principle was supposed to be responding to. And so we wouldn't need to have the fundamental differentiations of dignity or worth that I see between humans and animals, and between animals and plants, and between plants and rocks. But certainly, I mean, there's no position that hasn't been adopted in this, in this area. The position I find particularly challenging is the position that 
primarily addresses the relationship between human and non-human animals because there is so much there that overlaps in terms of susceptibility to pain, so much there that overlaps in terms of the affirmative value of life that we struggle a little bit to see whether there is any great discontinuity. Yes, uh, in the far back. Thank you. I came to the end of the row because it was easier to get the microphone. Um, I, I, I wonder if some of the examples that you cited, Professor Waldron, about um, uh, you know, the Reverend Rashdall's beliefs and distinctions between the races, um, our different approach to understanding of these things nowadays isn't because of deeper and more intense moral philosophizing, but because of the application of discovery of knowledge uh, to uh, what our beliefs may have been and what they are now. So for example, I don't know if these studies were ever done, but if there ever were studies of electrical uh, impulses within brain activity of people of different races, they would show there to be very little or no distinction at all on that basis. Equally, a lot of the changes that um, have taken place in public attitudes towards human sexuality in the last sort of couple of decades are partly informed by some uh, genetic understanding that some of the conditions of human sexuality are inherited and therefore not a result of a, of a choice that you make. So is there an extent to which, you know, further debate and discussion on a philosophical level is helpful up to a point, but better understanding perhaps through science of the world around us can also help us, you know, if we previously thought that there were distinctions which were real, which had an impact on our understanding of equality, these either don't exist or they exist because of different factors and therefore we regard them differently. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure that's right. Um, part, some of our differences with Rashdal are just empirical, empirical differences. But in order to know what empirical differences would be important or what we should be looking for with the increased science, we have to have already a framework of ideas that um, direct our inquiries. So in lecture three, for example, I'll be talking about some sense of what human equality is based on, what attributes, what capabilities, what characteristics, what aspects of agency. And unless we have answers to those questions that are given thoughtfully, we won't have anything to test, we won't have anything to look for. Um, I agree entirely that this is a two-way street and some of what we look for is dictated by some of what we've found out already. So, I mean, basically I'm in, in very strong agreement with you, but I believe it is important nevertheless to try to say as much as we can, not in advance of the science, but in partnership with the science, about what we think the fundamental uh, equality between human beings is based on and how we propose, this is of course the issue that I have to confront uh, at the end of this week, how we propose to deal with the issue of some differences of degree uh, among humans at the individual level, even if not at the gross level of gender or race. So I, I really do want to accept this, but accept that there has to be uh, interrelation between the philosophical and moral inquiry on the one hand, scientific inquiry on the other. We have a question up here. I'm not a historian, but it has always puzzled me that Jefferson uh, was a signatory to the American Constitution, and yet he was an owner of slaves. Will you care to comment, please? Yes. Um, we know that there are varieties and forms of 
human duplicity and hypocrisy. So we, we have to deploy that first. We have to deploy, secondly, a sense of what Jefferson meant when he said, I tremble, not just for my country, but I myself tremble when I consider that God is just, right? so that one can own slaves and be aware that that ownership is a disgrace. Um, so people can be in that position and they can exhibit that conviction with more or less good faith. There was, I mean, some people say, well, he must have meant something different by all men. Maybe he meant all men rather than women, or maybe he meant all white men. There's nothing to warrant that suggestion. Patently, he meant all human beings are created equal. He was just in a situation where that was morally uncomfortable for him. So what I would do, I think, is not flinch from the fact that the slave owner was saying all men are created equal, but there was the same slave owner who was saying of his ownership of slaves, I tremble when I think that God is just. And if you wonder about the disparity between them, look around you and wonder about the forms of hypocrisy that we manage on many things, including, for, for example, the treatment of animals, uh, for instance. So if there's some possibility of facing these incompatible facts unflinchingly, I think this would be better. Yes, in the, in the front. Um, if I understood you correctly, you were using uh, voting rights as an indicator of, of basic equality. Uh, what do you make then of um, various societies playing around with the voting age? In other words, is a 16-year-old suddenly more equal than an 18-year-old? Yeah. Again, it's a perfectly good question. I'm tempted to take the coward's way out and say you're going to have to listen, keep on coming back until lecture six. <laughs> right? But here's the short and dirty version. Humans exist over time. Um, I was a young man when I was last at Edinburgh for any length of time. Now I'm 61. Um, Humans exist over time. All of us were helpless infants at some stage. Um, equality, if it is to be attributed, is to be attributed to whole human lives, understood as trajectories from infancy to old age. Not only understood as trajectories, but understood as trajectories that are brittle and vulnerable to various vicissitudes. So how we organize things with regard to the transitions within these trajectories, of which age of maturity is one, of which voting age, didn't you allow 13-year-olds to vote in the Scottish referendum? <laughs> Whatever it was, didn't work. Um, so of course there are questions about the bright lines there. My comments about voting rights were not intended to suggest that this was an immediate um, offspring of basic equality, though I think that basic equality partly connotes when we're talking about equal respect, equal respect for the fundamental authority of each individual. Each individual has views, they have a life to lead and they have views about that life and views about the society in which they live in. They have a sense of justice. We need to respect that in the political system arrangements that we make. Now how we respect it will be partly a matter of uh, distributing the vote over these lifetimes. And we will say of somebody during their lives that they have not been treated as equals because they were never given the right to vote. We might say of somebody 
that they have not been treated as an equal because the right to vote was postponed unconscionably long, either by the system of some particular case. All of this can be said, for example, of African Americans uh, in the United States. It uh, can be said of women uh, to, to a great extent. And we might be talking about other ways in which the right to vote was denied, which rested not on particular hypotheses about how to draw bright lines for administrative purposes, but on the suspicion that that something more malign was an operation, thinking that some people were not one another's equals. But whatever we say about that, we're going to have to come to terms with, with that what we are attributing basic human dignity to and basic human worth to is the trajectory of a whole human life. Yeah? And then we have to figure out what the consequences are of taking that three-dimensional uh, perspective. Four dimensional, forgive me, four-dimensional four perspective. I think we... <laughs> I think we may draw things to a close for this evening. It has been an excellent first Gifford lecture. Professor Waldron has done everything that a Gifford lecture should do. He's defined his terms. He's foreshadowed the themes that he will be discussing. And I think the example of Hastings Rashtell was inspired. Because we look at Hastings Rashtell's views and our first response is, well, of course, we've moved beyond that. But as we move towards the levels of economic inequality that existed in Hastings Rashtell's time, and we are moving back to Edwardian levels of inequality, I think what uh, Professor Waldron has been suggesting is that some of those attitudes may be seeping back in. And I might so, and it's not clear that we're, we have to be careful. Are we absolutely sure that we're not sharing some of Hastings Rashdell's views? I think about the media coverage, for example, of tragic murders in Paris as opposed to the media coverage of tragic murders in Nigeria. And is it equal treatment and is it recognizing the essential, the basic human equality? So, oh, Professor Waldron, I think the response of the audience has indicated better than my words our appreciation for your first Gifford lecture. You, you've certainly captured our interest. And we look forward to your second lecture on everyone to count for one, the logic of basic equality, which will be presented tomorrow afternoon at 5.30 here in the Playfair Library. And we do have quite a few, I think we've had some empty seats, so uh, if, if you've not booked for the lecture tomorrow, try to book, but if it looks like it says it's fully booked, do come along. I think we'll be able to fit you in. Could you join me in, again, expressing our appreciation both for the lecture and for Professor Waldron's responses to our questions?